Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm your guest host, Emmy Vadness, filling in for Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is healing self-esteem. My guest is Dr. David Hanscom, who's been a guest on New Thinking Aloud two previous times. He is author of Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain, and Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? Take Control with the Spine Surgeon's Advice. David is based in the San Francisco Bay Area, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, David. It's such a pleasure to have you join us again here today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. You know, um, we have some nice, interesting discussions. I'm always looking forward to talking to you. Most of us are taught to have a healthy self-esteem, yet you say there's a myth to the term self-esteem. Per our conversations in which you've read that I've written, I think self-esteem is the worst concept ever propagated on the human race. <laughs> can, I, can I be more clear on that? <laughs> and why so? Originally, I'm a spine surgeon. I worked with chronic pain for many years. I did not realize that chronic pain is actually an inflammatory disorder. And then as we've gone through into the scientific work group, we're finding out that every chronic, every chronic disease, both mental and physical, is all the same problem. It's an inflammatory disorder and also increased metabolism. So when your body's under what we call threat or fight or flight physiology, it's a very powerful process. It's a million times stronger than your conscious brain. So your capacity to survive, your brain's processing all sorts of stuff. I mean, I blink automatically. I shoot to my chair so my skin doesn't break down. My mouth moves automatically so I can talk. I mean, it's all unconscious. Your unconscious brain processes about 40 million bits of information per second. 40 million. Your conscious brain processes 40 to million to one ratio. So you have this massive survival reaction. It's intended to feel uncomfortable because it's a survival reaction. And the species of creatures that didn't, that didn't pay attention to this survival sensation just didn't survive. So as human beings right now, the species that exist right now is basically survival of the most anxious as well as survival of the fittest. So the species of creatures that did not pay attention to these cues didn't survive. Humans have a problem is that we now have human consciousness that's only been about 100,000 years old or less compared to hundreds of millions of years of life. So we have this thing called language that developed that allow us to go from the bottom of the food chain to the top because we could cooperate. So I learned this from this book called Sapiens, that as humans learn to cooperate, about 20 to 25% of our fuel consumption or metabolic energy is to use to run our brains. Most mammals is about 2 to 4%. So from a survival standpoint, we didn't compete. And so when we became, had language and social interaction, and cooperated that we actually went to the top of the food chain. Unfortunately, again, my source is The Sapiens, which is an incredibly well-written book. We proceeded to wipe out 90% of every living creature that's ever existed on this planet based on our capacity to cooperate. So language is new. So we know how to physically survive. A lot of our survival behaviors are not very nice a lot of the time. But nonetheless, we know how to survive. 
Emotionally, we have not learned how to navigate our emotional landscape. And what the neuroscience shows is that consciousness, thoughts and concepts become embedded in our brain the same way as this chair or table. They're concrete. Your body reacts to these things. So we talked about this last time, their term called URTs, unpleasant repetitive thoughts. So what those are, we have these consciousness and we cannot escape our consciousness. Your consciousness or thoughts, unpleasant thoughts are a threat, just like a dog or a bully is. Your body responds the same way, but you can't escape them. Repressed thoughts and emotions are even worse. So we have this massive survival reaction. We have thoughts that create the same reaction. We have this massive survival reaction that's also created by our consciousness. So we now know that emotional pain and physical pain are processed in the same part of the brain. So what happens with this thing called self-esteem, you have this sensation that's unpleasant. We don't feel good about it. It envelops every cell in our body, so it feels like who we are. It's a survival reaction that everybody has, so why would we take it personally? So then what we're doing, we're trying to take this thing called self-esteem and somehow feel better about this massive survival reaction, and it can't work. It's a complete mismatch. So what you have to do is look at this survival reaction as a gift. You have to separate from it. Definitely your identity needs to become separated from the survival reaction. And this idea of self-esteem is if I get enough good feelings or good thoughts to deal, do quit feeling badly based on a survival reaction, somehow my life will be better. It can't work and it doesn't work. And it's actually very destructive. How would you define what self-esteem is and why you bristle so much at that term? Well, first of all, it's what took me down the hole. You know, I was in chronic pain for 15 years. I was actively suicidal and I had a chaotic background. I did not feel good about myself. I did not, I didn't know what anxiety was for a long time because it was my norm. That's what I was raised in. So I didn't know what anxiety was. And I honestly, my thing to cope with this sensation was just workaholic. So remember, avoiding this sensation is the driving force behind most human behavior, particularly behind all these psychological diagnoses. So again, we, anxiety is a physiological state that drives all these psychological diagnoses. So the key is actually depersonalizing this reaction because it's a gift. It keeps us alive. So the first thing I say, I tell people, say, look, this, separate, this is a reaction. Just visualize a large thermometer. And when you feel anxious, why well, you simply visualize how high the thermometer is going. And the way you decrease anxiety is simply drop it down. So there's a bunch of ways of dropping down your body's physiology to calm that thing down. What doesn't work is self-esteem. So self-esteem is this attempt to create these stories about our lives, to create this concept of a self, an ego. And we work really hard on this process. A lot of life energy goes into accomplishments and power and control and feeling good about ourselves and loving ourselves. It's a million to one mismatch. It doesn't work. So and we'll talk about this in a second in a lot of detail, but a lot of these stories we make up about ourselves, again, our attempt to create this self and self-esteem, are actually cognitive distortions. And I think he and I talked about this little book called The Way to Love by Dr. Anthony DeMello, one of the most powerful books I've ever read. I read it pretty much once or twice a week for the last 15 years. 
And he's considered one of the most brilliant minds of all time. I think he passed away in the late 80s. And um, even though it's a Jesuit priest, this is not a religious book. The way to love is actually the way to awareness. So before you can solve any problem in life, you have to understand what is actually there. Then you can solve the problem. So his point is, all of us are who our parents and teachers and peers in society has told us we should be. Right? We're programmed. And humans are unique. There's a book out called Live Wired out of Stanford. The point is that humans are very unique compared to other mammals and that we're programmed indefinitely. In other words, you know, a lot of animals can take care of themselves between 6 to 12 months as far as mammals. Humans are not really able to physically take care of themselves until maybe 8 or 10 years old. Then mentally, the brain doesn't really develop abstract thinking until the mid-20s, truly develop it. So every one of us is programmed, programmed, programmed for our consciousness keeps changing all the time, but it's based on what people tell us we should be. So who are you? So his point is awareness. You have to be aware of the programming that's there before you can connect to who you are. So can I jump to the end of the story for a second and we'll work backwards? Please. Okay. So, I mean, so, you say, well, self-esteem is a disaster, and it is. Again, just to say it one more time, and I'll say it a few more times, is that you have a million-to-one mismatch of trying to use your rational brain to do these incredibly unpleasant survival sensations that humans call anxiety. So those of us that are working with this is a physiological state. We want to get rid of the word anxiety and just use activated threat physiology, fight or flight. So you're not going to use this rational means to deal with your fight or flight response. Plus, it's always going to be there. I mean, how long do you think you would live if you didn't have fight or flight? About two minutes. I mean, you touch a hot stove, you, you would walk out in front of traffic. You would walk down dark streets of Chicago late at night. I mean, that's what keeps us alive. So what happens is that we're programmed by our past, what's safe versus unsafe. We're programmed by our entire past up to this very second, which, you know, again, other mammals that don't have consciousness don't have this issue. So then a lot of these stories about ourselves are based on cognitive distortions. So what's the answer to self-esteem? This is the end of the story is, first of all, connection to what is. Second of all, once you're connected, you can gain confidence that you know it's in there. Then third of all is compassion. So connection, confidence, and compassion is a lot different than this thing we call self-esteem. So it's sort of like snow skiing. For those of you that are skiers, skiing is actually a fairly dangerous sport. My son's an Olympic-level skier. He's had more injuries than I can count. I've had a few ski injuries myself. But you can't really learn to ski until you know how to stop. So how can you deal with your how can you deal with life unless you know actually what you're dealing with? So what Damela points out in his book, The Way to Love, is actually the way to awareness. So you become aware of your past and what's there. You don't have to cover it up, analyze it, fix it, understand it. You just have to be with it. And that being with it is how you learn to move forward with confidence. But a lot of us unpleasantly make lots of mistakes. We're programmed pretty badly by our parents. I came from an abusive environment. Um, I know a lot of people came from much worse abusive environments. And so as bad as mine was, I feel fortunate actually even to be here. But if you have a really tough start in life, why 
your reactions are going to be hyperactive, you'll be hypersensitive, and to go back and try to analyze and fix that, you're not learning the tools to actually deal with the day you're in right now. So the process that I work with my patient, I guess now clients, I'm retired from surgery, is I say, look, you got to be aware of the past. Anytime you're anxious or frustrated, the past just came into the present. There was something that something in the present reminded you of something in the past that was unpleasant or dangerous or perceived as such. So you're actually there. You're not here. You've lost awareness. So the tools are learning to become, okay, I'm aware. I'm anxious or frustrated. Okay. Something in the past is in the present. You don't have to go back and pattern trace because your, your attention is on the problem, not the solution. Because what are the tools to minimize that threat response and just get on with your day? So again, as you're okay with, you don't have to accept the past. In other words, a lot of things about my past I'm not very happy about. I don't accept it, but I'm going to embrace it because it's who I am. It's exactly who I am. I'm a product of my past right now. And I'm not against psychotherapy at all, but I did spend 13 solid years, once or twice a week in psychotherapy. There's nothing about my past that, that I don't know about. The trap is being, well, if you just know enough about my past, it's going to solve it. Well, where's your attention? It's on the past. It's not on the solution. So we've changed our energies really much more to processing the past. Understand, okay, the past is here today. I'm not in the present. There's a bunch of things you can do just to negotiate and neutralize that reaction and just get on with your day. So you're cultivating awareness. So as you allow yourself to be with these reactions, not trying to analyze them or fix them, that's number one, connection. The second thing is once you're connected to, even if the worst part of your past comes up, you can feel badly about it, try to analyze it, fix it for years. It's not going to change anything. But you realize, okay, this is the worst part of my past right now, and I can process it and move on to today. You have a lot of confidence. It's like any learned skill. It's about confidence. So I talk about becoming a professional at living your life. So if you learn how to process your past and nurture the present, that is becoming a professional at living your life. So you become a professional at living your life. You're less time in fight or flight, more time in safety, and people heal. Can you share a little bit more about what you mean by connection? What are people connecting to? Well, we use the metaphor we talked about about the oak tree <clears throat> is that you're just connecting to the past. Okay, so, I mean, my mother verbally abused us a lot. Did feel, I mean, that was normal for us. I mean, I just thought that's the way it was. And so I um, became very idealistic, sort of left a little escapism things in my mind to deal with it, but I didn't know anything differently. And again, I'm not very happy about it, but I just realized, okay, that past, I tried to outrun it by creating self-esteem. So I became smart. I became personal, athletic. I went to medical school. I went to one of the top spine fellowships in the world. I became a complex spine surgeon. And at age 37 years old, I burned out. So that's the energy that drove me, that need for self-esteem to compensate for this negative past, the same energy drove me up the hill, took me right down the other side. So seven years into this process, I was actively suicidal, actually started to cross the line. Not sure why I didn't even still. 
And what happens is I was using this thing of analyzing and fixing, my mind started to go crazy. I mean, really racing thoughts. And so I still was working on self-esteem, self-confidence, all this. I, I was a confident surgeon. Now, if I had been thinking about this carefully back then, I was a very confident surgeon. So there's a big difference in confidence and self-esteem. So you have to connect to what skills do I have or don't have to do surgery? What skills do I have to live or not live my life? So confidence means really being able to process adversity, adversity quickly and efficiently. Self-esteem tries to sort of cover the whole thing up. So the metaphor I used was the oak tree is that you have to dig deeper before you reach higher. So a chaotic, even abusive past is actually fertile soil for future growth because you learn a lot. So if you want to cover it up, analyze it, and fix it, that takes a tremendous amount of life energy. So again, it's not about accepting the past, but it's about being with it. So I'm agitated or frustrated now. My patterns are not very pleasant. I mean, when I get triggered, I don't like it. The very deep, powerful reactions from a very abusive past, I don't like it. But I also realize that these reactions, as my friend Bruce Lipton pointed out, that anxiety and anger are reactive, powerful survival patterns. They're automatic. They're hardwired. You have no say over them. You cannot control them. Then if you're going to use self-esteem to compensate for them, it's a huge problem. So the key is learning the tools to separate yourself, your identity from this reaction. Then there's a bunch of ways, again, anxiety and anger, just elevated threat states. There's a bunch of ways of self-regulating your body's physiology to calm that down. And self-esteem and talk therapy is not one of them. Many people are taught to be a good person, do well. And you mentioned your own history of how you... Uh, by many people's standards, they would think, wow, you really accomplished a lot. How is it that you, you know, struggled? Can you share a story of how you've seen somebody maybe embrace some of what you're sharing with us here today? We have hundreds of people um, who have broken loose. They're not anxious and not frustrated and they thrive and it happens consistently. In other words, this, this is just a learned skill set based on actually neuroscience. So none of this is David Hanscom. I'm just, my gift to the world is taking known proven medical research and just organize it in a way that's accessible. So there's one girl, um, her name is Esty. I can use her name. She's in my book. And she came to our first workshop that we did in Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York in 2013. And she had headaches, horrible neck pain. She's seen 10 doctors, six injections, high-dose narcotics, was still working, but really spiraling downhill. So she's very accomplished, a very attractive girl. And within one week, she went to pain-free. One week. So it's wow. about connecting with her anger about all sorts of stuff. Her father had died when she was, when he was four years old. So there's a big gap there that hadn't been really acknowledged. And what happens, people don't like feeling angry or they're so used to being angry and frustrated that this sort of the norm with them. But by connecting with what is, by connecting with the anger and connect with the anxiety and allowing yourself to feel, that was one of my friends says, you have to feel to heal. So again, you have to know what's there before you can change directions. And I would say it took her another solid year of going up and down, back and forth to come off narcotics completely. But she now has two beautiful kids. It's now 2022. Gorgeous kids, back working, no drugs at all. 
and married just a beautiful family, but she's thriving at a level she didn't know existed. Same thing with me. Because I'm not fighting off the survivor reaction. I don't have to. So anxiety and anger comes at me every day. Process it. Done. So I have the confidence that when I get triggered badly, I have the confidence to actually deal with this reaction. Then I'm allowing myself, my conscious brain, to move forward and enjoy my life. So I'm not working on accomplishing things anymore or attaining more position and power to help my self-esteem. I just process that quickly enjoy my life. So self-esteem becomes actually sort of a non-issue. Don't even need it. And so again, the contrast to self-esteem is connection to what is. And I didn't finish the metaphor of the oak tree, but you have the roots going into the soil of your past. It allows you to grow a very solid base and reach up and actually reach out and protect other people. That's why the metaphor of the oak tree because there's such a widespreading branches. And so... What happens, but there's patient when I think I showed you the word before. She was also in chronic pain for 55 years. She's now been out of pain for about 10 years. She came to three of her workshops. Her name is Rita. And she came up with a word called Neuroschmidt. N-E-U-R-O, Neuroschmidt. And so the past becomes your fertile ground for Neuroschmidt for future growth. If you want to analyze and fix the past, you can't do it. It's done. So you mentioned an example, something that happened when you're 10 years old, you, you did something bad to somebody. You can spend a lot of time analyzing it and rationalizing it. Well, I was only 10 years old. I didn't know better. I'm going to forgive myself, et cetera, et cetera. They're, they're not bad things to try, but they can't work. So, okay, so something bad happened when you were 10. And today, that didn't work very well back then. So you're not going to do the same thing today. So if you just look at your past, you don't have to accept the fact that that happened. You don't have to like it. You don't have to rationalize yourself as a good or bad person. It just happened. So you learn to just be with your past, again, digging your roots into the soil, and then allows you to grow at a level that's unbelievable. So what I'm excited about the process I take people through is that they not only solve their chronic pain, but they thrive. And once they hit the tipping point, they start processing new information in a different way, they can't go backwards because your brain has changed. You actually physically change the structure of your brain. You're saying that if we strive and try and push ourselves and have a lot of negative self-talk or self-criticism, that we can block ourselves from actually achieving what we want to achieve. Well, here's the paradox. Okay, so I became one of the top spine surgeons in the country. So I was, quote, successful, right? But I got sick. And right now, the burnout rate in medicine is over 70%. And my colleagues are dropping like flies. And so, as I mentioned, I almost committed suicide. And I think that these obsessive thought patterns, which I think are driven by self-esteem, torture people. If you told I developed a full-blown obsessive compulsive disorder, which is manifested by repetitive, very intense, intrusive thoughts, that just get worse and worse, worse and worse with time of repetition. But what I didn't know, the more time you spend trying to analyze and fix these things, from a neuroplasticity standpoint, and neuroplasticity is actually your brain changing structure, you're actually reinforcing the problem, you're not going to the solutions. So you have to separate from that and then move forward. So the real healing occurs as you start living the life that you want to live, 
your brain changes that direction. In other words, to live a good life, you must live a good life. It takes practice. However, you cannot move into that good life until you're able to separate from the past. Now, that occurs multiple times a day. It's not one and done. Every day, anxiety and anger come up. You learn to do this at a very dynamic level. So you process this, process this, and then you move into this. Every day, all day long. Some days are bad days. Some weeks are bad weeks. If your stresses are too high, you're going to fold. You'll be in fight or flight. That's life. But as you learn the skill process to do this every day, it becomes very automatic. You start to move forward, and the healing occurs as you move forward into the life that you want to live. Not the life that you think you should live to compensate for the past, but you just get to live the life that you want, and your brain changes in that direction. Very powerful process. So paradoxically, as you let go of trying to compensate for the past, you you thrive and accomplish more than you can ever dream of. I have way more stress on my plate right this second than I had years ago when I folded. But the stress I don't have is the stress in my brain going a thousand miles an hour. It, I mean, the biggest stress in people's lives are these unpleasant, repetitive thoughts. That's a powerful story about helping that person out of chronic pain. And I myself, as a healthcare practitioner, have seen many people in pain. And I think most people deal with some level of physical and emotional pain. And you're suggesting that these thoughts and attachments are really what could be driving what you call threat physiology or keeping us in that arousal state. Right. There's a Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett who wrote a book called How Emotions Are Made. She's one of the top neuroscientists in the world. And she spent a lot of time on the neuroscience of human consciousness. It turns out that thoughts and concepts become as embedded in your brain as this this chair or table. So I used to say that, well, thoughts are real because they create chemical reactions in their body, which you do, but they're not reality. That's not true. Your thoughts and concepts and programming are your version of reality. That's why every human being is infinitely different because we're all programmed by different environments, really different environments. We're infinitely different. It's a different topic. So if we're so infinitely different based on our past programming, why do we keep trying to make each other the same? You know, to understand the depth of our differences would allow us maybe to work to get along better in a way. So we're really programmed by our past. And so I am not vegetarian anymore, but I was raised a vegetarian. So I eat a hamburger is a different experience than eating a hamburger for somebody who's raised reading eating hamburgers every day. So that, then if I eat a veggie burger, to me, that's actually more attractive than a hamburger because just it's my background. It's my past. That's why everybody's physical tastes are the same. Their styles are different. And whatever your programming is, some people care a lot about style and fashion. Other people don't. Not one person is good or bad. They're just different. The problem with self-esteem, again, I'll say it again, the mismatch is huge. And a lot of our self-esteem is based on what people have told us we should be or what we should do. Again, we're programmed by our past. And so a lot of these stories are based on cognitive distortions. And for those of you who don't, who don't know what cognitive distortions are, um, Dr. David Burns wrote a book called Feeling Good. That book actually literally saved my life. It was the one thing after 15 years of solid pain that pulled me out of the hole. So by the way, mental pain and physical pain are the same thing. 
There's a common basis for all of this. It's all the same stuff. That's why I don't differentiate it anymore at all. But he points out there's 10 different cognitive distortions. One of them is should thinking or perfectionism, the self-critical voice. One is minimizing the positive and emphasizing the negative. Labeling is a big one. Mind reading. In other words, if you act a certain way, you must be thinking a certain way. We have nothing to do with you. So, for example, one of my cognitive distortions, which will always be there, if somebody doesn't call me back quickly, I always assumed I pissed them off. Every time. What did I do? <laughs> and I'm always wrong. But so that's just so that's called mind reading. So labeling is a big one. You label somebody as such and such. And so these there's 10 different cognitive distortions. And so if you start looking at your self-esteem, you look at Dr. Burns' 10 cognitive distortions, it's remarkable that probably 70% of self-esteem is based on cognitive distortions. It's unbelievable. So what he points out, and this is where he and I disagree a little bit, even though I think think he's a genius, by the way. I'm a total fan. I know him. He knows what a fan I am. And he's a remarkably brilliant human being. But we have a different take on one part of it. So you recognize the thought, that's the distortion. You, in the second column, write down what the distortion is. Like I just call this person a jerk. Well, this person may have just had a, ba- a major loss. I don't know why that person is acting this way. So you might write down, okay, this person's a jerk. That's a con- uh, just the cognitive distortion is labeling. Then the third column you you would write, well, this person's acting a certain way, but I, I actually don't know why. And so he is saying it's about challenging the thoughts, which I think has some merit. I like the cognitive distortions because it just allows you to realize with more granularity how crazy our consciousness really is. But I also found out that there's a different way of approaching it, is that if it's a cognitive distortion, there's nothing to do. It's just a story. It's not real in the first place. It's real in your brain. So I have a little saying of no action and a reaction. In other words, okay, I'm anxious and frustrated. My brain is gone. My the, the activity in my brain has actually gone from the thinking centers into the survival centers. I'm in fight or flight. I'm not thinking clearly. So when I'm reacting, I just take a break because I'm not thinking clearly. So then the second part of it is I say flip the switch. Okay, I've been in this victim, angry, anxious mode. I let that pass. So the cognitive distortion is there. So when, once you recognize, okay, this is a cognitive distortion, this is David, you know, this is Demela's stuff about awareness. Okay, I'm aware this is a distortion. Since it's not real in the first place, just let it go. Move on. There's nothing you have to fix because it's not real. Now, if you want to go the self-esteem route, you're going to just really work to, to compensate for this cognitive distortion, which is not reality in the first place. You see what I mean? What mm-hmm. self-esteem does, that disconnection type process, so again, I want to go back to confidence is different than self-esteem. And again, you can't have confidence until you connect with what is. And self-esteem is actually disconnecting from what is. So I spent my entire life trying to compensate for this quote story of my past that was not good. And I sort of did it for a while. And then in, in, at age 37 years old, I went into panic attacks. I had 17 different physical and mental symptoms, and I was sick for 15 years. So when I started, it was called expressive writing, again, recommended by Dr. Burns, that within two weeks, things started to shift. Because what the writing does is separate you from these thoughts. 
So it puts the distortions on paper, you're here. There's now a physical space separated by vision and feel, which is part of your unconscious brain. Mm -hmm. So what happens is that um, I thought it was the book, which is a brilliant book, but also expressive writing has been documented in over 1,200 research papers to be effective as student performance, athletic performance, anxiety, depression, actually viral load, wound healing, asthma, autoimmune disorders all respond to expressive writing because it's anti-inflammatory. So remember, anxiety is a physiological state. It's inflammatory, elevated metabolism, which is fuel consumption. So again, avoiding the sensation that we call anxiety or fight or flight response drives human behavior in a really powerful way. So you get lots of dysfunctional behaviors that are psychological diagnosis, but anxiety is the driving force. And so a lot of us want to get out of the DSM coding system, say like it's the driving force. So it's not an anxiety disorder. Our behavior is driven by trying to avoid that sensation. And self-esteem is a very, very feeble attempt to do that. Yes, I, I hear what you're saying. When we are trying to be a certain way or to avoid discomfort, really, we avoid pain and we go toward pleasure. And you're suggesting that when we are building stories around ourselves, we're actually maybe suppressing uh, some of these aspects of ourselves versus recognizing it's just part of who we are, which is easier said than done to go with the flow of some of these reactions that come up. Uh, but I know that, like you say, having that awareness and being able to, to step back and be with those, those thoughts and feelings versus letting them override us, uh, can be helpful. Absolutely. No, you said that really nicely. I, I like what you just said. Um, and also Freud back in the 1800s pointed out really early on, he was a neurologist, by the way. And when he put some of these concepts out there, his fellow neurologist laughed him right out of the room. He actually decided just to bag it. He just didn't even talk about this until the end of his life. But the essence of mental health is being psychologically flexible. He pointed this out over 150 years ago. And that means being with unpleasant emotions. You just get to be with them and be flexible with them and just move on. So we take these stories, stories too seriously, especially if you're using these stories to compensate for this unpleasant sensation. And again, when you're anxious and angry, you feel guilty, you feel ashamed, you have all sorts of unpleasant impulses, and they're survival reactions that are a gift. But since they affect every cell in your body, it feels like your identity, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So my point being is that if every living creature has this reactive, I'm sorry, survival reaction that's unpleasant, why would we take it personally? I think the tricky part for some people is when these feelings can stay with them a majority of the day and they can become sort of embroiled in their uncomfortable feelings, sadness, depression, stress, anxiety. Are there any other methods you would suggest that to help them move from those so that they can be more in the flow with them? Because when you're caught up in them, you're already feeling them and they can be overwhelming. So again, based on the idea of self-esteem, you cannot do this, you cannot do this with mind over matter. So I did put together, as you know, it's called the DOC journey, direct your own care journey. 
So there's this sequence is that you have to be nice. I mean, the number one factor in solving chronic mental and physical pain is being nice to yourself. I mean, treat yourself with kindness. And so what happens, we feel terrible about ourselves. We beat ourselves up. We're feeling anxious and frustrated. So once you create that separation, you're off to a good start. So with, with the, it's called the direct your own care journey. It takes you through a sequence. And first of all, with expressive writing, it's the one thing that's absolutely mandatory. No substitution. The, the top researchers in the world have pointed out that what the writing does is separates you from these thoughts. Thing, second thing is a process called active meditation or a form of mindfulness. You just drop your shoulders, connect to a sensation. And when you're connected to a sensation, your mind is on the sensation, not the racing thoughts. Um, the third thing is not complaining, not sharing your pain, not giving criticism, not looking at the news that's unpleasant, not looking at horror movies because it fires up your physiology. So not discussing your pain or complaining is a big deal. Then a huge one is sleep. So that's the starting point. Then there's a sequence of starting with the basics, then understanding the principles. This third section is on, on anxiety, really explain how anxiety is a neurochemical, physiological state, not psychological. The next section is on awareness, that there's four different types of awareness, which we'll talk about at a different time. And then it goes into anger. Now, humans have a problem is that every creature is not, we're not, we're not programmed to be vulnerable because if you're vulnerable in the wild, you just don't survive, right? I mean, you just, you don't live. But at the, at the, at this, it's in humans are in the same boat, both emotionally and physically. So we're not programmed to be vulnerable. It's an unpleasant sensation. It's uncomfortable. We'll do anything to avoid it. Yet it's at the core of human relationships is feeling vulnerable. So we have a huge problem as a human race about this vulnerability thing. So that's based on awareness. And when you're angry, again, you're connected to the past. You're not in the present. You've lost awareness. And again, we have a horrible amount of domestic violence in the country. Why would you do that? This is somebody you love. You wouldn't treat a grocery store clerk like this. Why would you do that to your own family? Because when you're triggered, your brain goes offline. You're in a survival reaction. You aren't thinking clearly and bad things happen. So again, connecting to that reaction, understand, okay, this is not who I am. I'm not going to do anything in this reaction. You create some space. So the reason why anger came after awareness, because once you become angry, it's over. And while you're in that state, you just cannot take any action. No action and a reaction. So then the next section is about getting organized and learning how to reprogram these tools in your brain for repetition. The last part, he's a metaphor of building a house, is that, you, again, to live a good life, you have to practice. So mm-hmm. you just, it's your nurturing joy. <clears throat> Choosing joy is a learned skill because we're not taught that. We're in our background in training and schooling where we train to choose joy. Because we're in a survival mode, right? The schoolyard, the teachers, the grades, the competition. We tend to have fun to distract ourselves. But choosing true joy is not a learned skill. At least in my world, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. So there's a long way of saying that this is a stepwise process. You cannot do it with mind over matter. This is with the same problem that self-esteem doesn't work. Self-esteem is an attempt to try to suppress this massive survival reaction. So is positive thinking. 
And so there's a whole bunch of literature now on the deadly nature of positive thinking, which, of course, self-esteem is one of those ways of doing it, right? You know, things aren't that bad. I look like this to compensate for this. It doesn't work. Do you distinguish between positive thinking and a positive attitude? Absolutely. Positive outlook is like an NFL football player running towards the goal line with three tacklers on his back. He just keeps pushing and pushing forward. He has a positive attitude, positive outlook, right? Positive thinking is, well, the tacklers aren't really there. He'll be taken down in a second because guess what? He has three tacklers on his back. He has to really work hard to get through those tacklers. So connect with the reality of three linemen on his back gets him to the goal line, right? So a huge difference. Positive outlook is actually also been found to be anti-inflammatory. It's necessary because the key word is persistence, right? And so that positive outlook is absolutely critical. Many people compare themselves to others to want to improve their lives, right? Like we're, we're taught to reach for our dreams and to accomplish what, you know, our heart's desires are. And along that process, it's very common for people to compare themselves to others and to feel even jealousy or envy. And do you have any, do you have any words of wisdom around, around that? Right. So again, if you have more money than your neighbor, you feel a bit better about yourself. But again, you still can't compensate for these massive reactions. We all know the stories about lottery winners who just self-destruct because, again, it doesn't change your brain. So the bottom line is you cannot outrun your brain. And so that's why self-esteem is such a terrible problem because it's a judgment pattern. You're either better than or worse than every second of the day. You're always comparing, right? Yes. The beauty of this... Again, it's a learned skill. It starts to dissolve a little bit at a time. And we all know a lot about Buddhism, but it's hard to get there. It's a brilliant philosophy. But as your self dissolves, you don't care. You just want to enjoy your day, connect to the day. It's about connection, connection, connection. So I connect my day. I have a nice house. It's not a great house, but it's a nice house. If I can, And we've heard this over and over again. Your success in life actually depends on being happy with what you have, right? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. the opposite of self-esteem, right? Mm-hmm. Because it was, again, by definition, self-esteem, you're always in a judgmental mode, better than or worse than all the time. That motor doesn't turn off. So as your ego dissolves, you live life in pure awareness. And it doesn't happen to me very often, but there are days where all of a sudden I just experience the day. That's it. I, I don't have all these racing thoughts anymore. I mean, I had, I had a full-blown obsessive compulsive disorder which is the worst of the worst, it's a nightmare. But I'm also talking to a lot of people where these obsessive thought patterns just torture them, especially with teenagers right now. So as you learn how, again, this all, so the problem is as you have this fired up nervous system, it's like a hot griddle. Your thoughts just start exploding off of it. So you have to divert the thought. You also have to, have to calm down the heat. And then you start to live your life in awareness. So, yeah, and then we, the last part about this we didn't talk about, we can finish off with this and that. Okay, you have connection to the past. Again, the oak tree metaphor, which is nourishment for future growth. Same thing is you have confidence. Okay, the past is what it is. I can deal with it. So confidence comes from awareness and connection. Then compassion can emerge. Because if you're not fighting off these, if you're trying to survive, you can't reach out, Right. That's the problem with burnout right now with physicians is that we know burnout physicians don't 
perform as well. Nobody does. But if you're trying to personally survive this massive reaction, can't, it's hard to reach out. So all of us have compassion. So if you're trying to use, I'm a compassionate doctor, I'm a compassionate person, again, you're using self-esteem, using a rational construct. The reality is, is you connect with what is. Compassion's already there. We evolved as a social species. And so what happens is you allow to de-energize these crazy, massive circuits, compassion just emerges. And so that's the magic of this whole thing, is that you learn to have compassion. Your life starts to evolve in a way that you just cannot imagine. It's unbelievable. And it's consistent. But it's backwards, right? What do you mean by that? Well, you can't manufacture compassion. You can do it in a way, but allowing compassion, allowing your inherent compassion to emerge is a reverse process. Yeah, even the Dalai Lama talks about how no matter what you maybe physically have or don't have in life, you can still be a kind, loving, and compassionate person. Right. But not if you're jealous of somebody else. Right? Exactly. So that's self-esteem. You know, I don't have as much of this person, or, you know, I have more than this person, so I feel good about myself. I feel better about myself. I I mean, again, I'll just say it one more time. I know this is not a popular way thing to say, but self-esteem is a disaster. It's a mother of all cognitive distortions. And it's a distortion because you're saying that it's a way of looking at yourself that's a story. And by striving in that story, you're actually not being your authentic self. Right. You're not even connected to, I mean, your authentic self is your entire program of your life to this very second. That's who you are, like it or not. You don't have to like it, but you can connect with it. So you create these stories to make up for it. You're disconnected from who you are. And then as we've talked about before, is that I think there's a book out called No Self, No Problem. So the self starts to dissolve. As you quit this judgment process, this whole thing that we call self and ego, again, you can't actively dissolve it. But like DeMillo points out, as you become aware of what the self is, it starts to dissolve on its own. It's powerful. Exactly. I know for myself personally and and also guiding many people who've come to see me, being able to go into meditation, or really that's just a term. I know some people don't love that term, but as you've shared, there's a lot of neuroscience research on meditation that when you sit and are able to just be, let the thoughts settle or even just let them do what they're doing without even reacting to them, coming back to the breath. There's many different methods for meditation. A very popular one these days, uh, John Kabat-Zinn, of course, made this very popular and for very good reason, which also has a lot of research behind it, is mindfulness, mindfulness-based stress reduction. And I know for myself personally that that is a saving grace in my life because as I'm able to sit and be with myself from a place of non-judgment, and I think that that's really sort of a fulcrum perhaps we're talking about here today, is judgments and labels. And when I'm able to sit with my thoughts, my emotions, my body sensations, and just be with what is without labeling them as good or bad, right or wrong, and noticing my thoughts, my emotions, and not judging them and just being with them, what happens is, is that they tend to lessen and dissolve. And then I can get to that place of, of peace. And I really encourage everybody to uh, engage in that and at least maybe listen to one mindfulness meditation and give it a try yourself to see what you think of it, how you feel. 
I think it's a wonderful finishing summary. And again, as it served, I thought mindfulness and meditation was just nonsense. It's anti-inflammatory. It stimulates the vagus nerve. John Zabuzin has pointed out that actually if you do mindfulness-based meditation for eight weeks, the amygdala is a part of the brain that's a fear response. The actual size of the amygdala shrinks. It shrinks. I mean, what more evidence do you need? This is not psychological. It's, it, it takes your body's physiology to allow something to shrink. They also found out that thought suppression actually causes your hippocampus to shrink, which is the memory center. So we know with thought suppression, which again, self-esteem is a form of doing that, it actually has increased opioid use and actually causes the hippocampus or the memory center of your brain to physically shrink. What these tools allow you to do, which you just talked about, by the way, meditation is a wonderful tool. The problem is you, it's, a, it's a tough starting point because your brain's on fire, you're inflamed. So that's where the sequence, I think the meditation actually is a final home run. And again, as you program it, it becomes very automatic. You just, you just start connect with your life automatically. But the neuroscience behind meditation is huge. But again, it's a learned skill that it's a tough starting place, but it's a great finishing place. Yeah. And I also practice yoga, physical asanas, when actually the eight limbs of yoga meditation is, is one limb of it. And my yoga teacher taught me that we do the asanas, the physical postures of yoga, so that we can then sit and commune with God, meaning that we can then sit and be with that in meditation. So essentially, and for those who of you maybe who aren't wanting to do yoga physically, although I think it's excellent, and there's great research coming out on yoga for so many benefits, um, that doing some type of physical activity before doing a seated meditation or even going for a walk or maybe even starting with a walking meditation. You can even do a walking mindfulness meditation. So, so there's a lot of, a lot of ways to enter into it and to be able to be less critical and more, um, non, you know, less judgmental and more perhaps even unconditionally loving and accepting and kind to yourself. Absolutely. No, no thing. I, I mean, I, <clears throat> yeah, no, I appreciate letting me hear my thoughts. Um, they're a little different, and I really appreciate your time letting me um, share my thoughts. Absolutely. Dr. David Hanscom, it's been a pleasure once again to have this beautiful conversation with you. Thank you so much for leading the way in these areas. Is there Are there any last thoughts you have about healing self-esteem? It's a solvable problem by not trying to solve it. You just You just go a different direction. You separate and move on, and it's so solvable. But you can't solve it by solving it. Sounds like a cone. <laughs> I know. Thank you so much for being with me here today, David. Thank you. No, I enjoyed it, as usual. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us.